Okay, this is Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager. I'm here with Vicky, who is a Singaporean resident who's also lived in France. And we're going to talk about Singapore and the pandemic and also what it's like to live in a city-state. Okay, Vicky, why don't you get us started off? Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to Singapore right right now. Uh, today is the 17th of November, and I believe at your time is 10 a.m., and my time is 11 p.m. So a good evening and a good morning to everyone. So you okay. would... Yep. No, go ahead. Okay, um, today, the pandemic in uh, Singapore. I would like to um, share with you, uh, Ben, how it all started. The first case in Singapore started on the 24th January. Um, and, and this was a cluster. And it, it, it wasn't detected in Singapore. Okay, there was a huge conference in the Grand Hyatt, and you know the Grand Hyatt is owned by the Americans. It's an international conference, I think over 100 people. But I think there are about uh, more than 10 people got infected, and then they went all over the world. Okay, these like 10 people, right? And the neighboring country, Malaysia, told us that one of the case um, went there. And then, you know, and then immediately, the Singapore government um, took the took rapid action um, for contact tracing, and it stopped the spread. So it was kind of controlled in the clusters. But I, but for today, I would like to um, tell all your all of your listeners, um, we've already got seven days of having zero case of local transmission. So locally, we've got seven uh, days of zero cases, zero positive cases. Um, and the cases that are um, recorded are people who are coming in by the flights. So there are seven cases that are imported. Um, I mean, they, some of them are Singaporeans, some of them are, are, are foreigners, they're working here, they're coming back here. But these people are quarantined. So it is still a... a I mean, it is still 100% um, contained, so people are still really safe, but everyone is in mask. Um, so this is the situation in Singapore now. What else would you like to know? Yeah. Well, I guess, like, tell us about how Singapore, uh, basically how you were able to contain this virus so well, because... Like in America, in some places in this country, wearing a mask is is uh, seen as very socially unacceptable, even now. Yeah, really, yeah. yeah. Um, and I would like to share uh, with you, uh, Ben. Now, it has got to do a lot of. Um, there's a lot of cultural difference here, um, in Singapore. Um, the people, number one, they respect the law and there's trust with the government, number two. And number three, there is, a, there is respect and concern for your neighbours. Um, and I think these three fundamental principles underpin how the whole society reacted. So when the first case was in Singapore, um, there wasn't 
a mandatory uh, law for everyone to wear the mask. However, the lockdown happened in Singapore on the 6th of April when a lot of countries were in lockdown. I think in America, in Europe, uh, uh, even in, in, in Europe, in Italy, in France, there, the lockdown started in early part of March and then in America it was um, mid part of March. Here, the cases only spiked after April. So we do only see like single digits, uh, double digits, at that time. So what happened was there was a whole host of the whole government came in together to have this uh, huge multitask um, task force that came in to stop the pandemic. And you know how it worked? It's like they have all these police um, who were trained in FBI. Okay, They actually trace every case and it was reported and you can see that they trace to um, the neighbors, the taxi drivers, um, the market, um, everyone. So everyone was quarantined. All right. And um, immediately the police came into effect. They were doing all the calls. They were verifying the people. Where were you? Da, 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 da. And immediately the whole of the police force plus the medical force, I call them people at the front line, they were all in action. So from the first case that were clocked on the 24th of January, the whole of the government went into action. But one thing I would like to say um, to you is that while the government was in frantic, they had all these things in place, right? The rest of the Singapore um, community um, were largely still living their lives, meaning they were advised to wear masks, a mask and they were advised to stay home. But however, people largely still lived their lives. Um, they still went to the shops, they still um, went to school, etc. Now the case only uh, started to spike after the lockdown because the curve was going up. But at that time, uh, largely Singapore, Singapore was still in, I should say, the old normal, right? Because the people knew that the government and the police, the FBI were tracing the cases and uh, the medical teams were all like locking all these people, all, all these cases up. Now, how did the people, yeah. I think I should clarify that the FBI is a Singaporean agency. And okay, I would say that the American, yeah, I would say that the American Singaporean equivalent of the FBI, it is called the CID here. Okay, it is called the CID here because they were trained for tracing, right? They've got this whole team of people, and when the news came out to show over a hundred police people, they were just calling the people, tracing the people, asking where were you at this time, etc., etc. So they were tracing the whole. Um, a footprint of where the cases went and um, I don't think there was there were any dispute that people who were contacted were isolated and they knew they have the social responsibility to isolate themselves and I think the important thing to mention is in this part of the world in Singapore because we have got this um, mentality of taking care of your neighbor taking care of your family that collective uh, mentality 
that not to harm your neighbor, which is so much entrenched into the psyche, um, people voluntarily do that respons responsibly. Um, I would say that there's a lot of emphasis on social responsibility, a community responsibility. And I was, in fact, at the end of January, because I was reading all these news that were coming out in Europe by the scientists and the graphs were coming up, um, and the graphs were showing that um, this the, tra the, the trajectory of the numbers is going to spike if there were no intervention by the government, right? And it went all the way up. And at that time, nobody believed the scientists because they were saying, how could this be so? But I, were, I was reading all these news and I printed out the news and I gave to my neighbors. And, I, and, and largely people were just like sharing, hey, um, is, this, is this going to be another case of the SARS case? Da, 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 you know? People were just talking and people just wanted to inform your neighbors. And, and I was giving out the mask to my friends and to my neighbors. And uh, the neighbors were just sharing the news because everyone was trying to be concerned for everyone. So here in this part of the world, there is a, a level of consciousness that we need to take care of our neighbors. And we need to take care of ourselves and our neighbors and our family. So there is this sense of um, personal responsibility and neighborhood responsibility that permeates through the whole society. And I think that's how the society of Singapore or in Asia responded. Like, um, I got to take care of you for me to be safe. And because we're talking about an infectious disease. And there's a lot of science behind. And um, even though um, the government was doing a good job before the lockdown, people were still going through their lives. But however, the numbers were starting to spike because of um, certain clusters, right? And I need you and the listeners to understand Singapore is a really small island. And you drive like an hour um, from the west to the east across just about 40 kilometers, right? Um, and we've got a, we've got a population of um, 7 million people, um, 4 million uh, locally born and bred here, uh, and about 2 million of uh, expatriates, a lot of them from Europe and America. We've got the biggest bank, American banks here, Citibank, Standard Chartered, etc. Um, and the biggest um, uh, 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 venture capitalists located here in Singapore, the headquarters. Um, and we've got the biggest, huge American manufacturers here. You name it, they're all here, right? Um, GlaxoSmithKline, Pfizer, um, ExxonMobil. Um, all the big brand names are here because Singapore is really like the headquarters of Asia for these big brand names. So now back to the story. Um, so this is a really packed, um, highly uh, dense country um, with a population of density that's one of the highest in the world in a really small island. Um, and we've got lots of foreign immigrant workers who live in the dormitories, unfortunately. Um, they came from. They come from many parts of the world, usually third world countries, um, and they and they were living in this highly packed dormitories, like six stories, and you've got like thousands of them staying there, 
and the cases spiked there um, and it went to like thousands of, of the immigrants. And now sad to say, it affected a lot of the population of the foreign uh, immigrant workers there. And um, some of the stories didn't go well. However, um, it went up and the cases um, for Singapore now stands about 58,000. Um, about 90% of these cases were in the foreign um, uh, workers' dormitories, um, sad to say. Um, and then, however, the government took control of the situation, isolated them, gave them uh, their wages. The, the government paid them wages in full, and all of them were isolated. They were quarantined, and all of them were given food, and all of them were given free Wi-Fi to contact their families, either in India, in Bangladesh, or whichever countries they come from. So the, the numbers only went down, like, um, two months ago, when um, the lock the lockdown um, uh, the lockdown was ceased on the first of June, and then we went to phase two. And since phase two started, the cases were quite low in the community. Like for the last seven days, we've got zero cases um, in the community. So the whole of the um, uh, government came in like a task force to took control of the situation. And, and I would say that um, a good part of it, um, I, I would like to uh, applaud the government for doing a good job. And of course, it's not perfect. Um, there's a lot of people who are still um, questioning uh, certain policies, etc. But the laws quickly enacted that if you leave your home without a mask since the lockdown, right, in April, you will be charged in court or you will be penalized like heavy like five thousand Singapore dollars and exchange rate is like 1.3 US dollars to uh, uh, 1.3 Singapore dollars to, to one US dollar so people will find yeah so that's an awful lot of money for people yeah yeah money. you could charge you and and there are people and there and there are people charging court even today right so since the lockdown Okay, what, what happens in a lockdown? The, the laws were uh, enacted. Um, you can't, uh, no, no, nobody could come into your house. All right, you've got to close your door. Um, you've got to wear a mask if you do leave your house to buy groceries. So essential travel was the only thing. And everyone was, uh, the, the schools were closed. Um, only essential work was allowed. Um, uh, public transport, was minimal it was still there but minimal um and you can't and and um yeah largely no one's supposed to come out of the house except for essential um shopping for for food um and restaurants were closed down okay so the whole of the country kind of went into a shutdown mode so that was phase one but i think uh, it took the people about two weeks to get into that mode um, that understanding um, the severity of the situation. Um, but I think a lot of people were not in fear because the media was not, um, was not, uh, the media was not, how should I say, there weren't a lot of news that talked about um, how scary it was, um, at least for this, at least for Singapore. 
Um, the death rate till today was 28. And I did mention that um, it really depends on the medical doctor in the hospital, how they diagnose the case, whether it is um, a, a direct, directly related, uh, the death which is directly related to COVID, or that it was indirectly related to COVID. It depends on the hospital or the doctor. So anyway, um, registered cases that is due to uh, COVID is 28. Uh, and it's kept that since uh, uh, for, for quite many months. So the recovery rate, um, I should say, is about 99%. Um, we've got about 60, um, 60 to 70 cases that are still active in the hospitals. Um, severity of the law, it played a huge part, uh, Ben, here. Um, the police were out in force. Uh, if anyone is caught without a mask, the police is going to come after you immediately or your neighbor is going to come after you because your neighbor is going to report you to the police and that happens in Singapore, right? Um, if someone knows that you are not wearing your mask, they would take a picture, they put it on social media and you're kind of shamed, okay? And your picture goes out um, into the internet. So there are cases whereby people were shamed um, by the community because they weren't uh, wearing the mask. But largely, th these are just cases there. There's just few, far and few in between. Um, and if you are a foreigner working in Singapore and you are caught uh, to, flaunt, to flaunt the law, not wearing a mask and not social distancing, immediately your working visa is suspended and you will be asked to leave the country immediately and your job and your employer, uh, like, you'll be cut. So that happened to many, many uh, expatriates here. And I'm, talking, I'm, and I'm talking about like British, American expatriates because we've got a good community of um, European and, and Americans here. And now that, that's a dichotomy, right? They've got these group of people who don't believe in some of them, right? A good part of them or, or a segment of them who did not want to wear masks, right? And a large part of them are not Asians. But there is a good part of the people here community believe in wearing the mask because um, Singaporeans like myself, um, I wear my mask even pre-pandemic because of the pollution. We, we, we are living in a highly densely populated city, you know. The um, chemical from the environment, um, chemical from the cars, um, cigarette smoke, um, etc., etc. When you go to a shop, you go to the, the mall, there's so many people, you put on a mask. I mean, it's quite a common place here. Um, so it is acceptable social practice that people put on the mask because some people are... Um, you know they are they are they have low immunity. They've got medical problem. Um, they're older, or they just didn't want to have the pollution. So when the government enacted the law for mandatory, uh, mandatory uh, mask wearing, um, people accepted that, and uh, and and I should say that the community became the police. Like if you see someone without a mask. 
you just take a picture and you just upload it to the to the internet. So um, largely, um, there isn't a problem about wearing mask uh, at all. Um, we never felt that it was a it was like an encroachment of your freedom or an encroachment of your right. Um, it's never that at all. And I think also because people largely are informed, they do see the signs behind. People are not in panic or anxiety mode, um, at least the people that I know. Uh, there may be a subset of uh, the people who are anxious, fearful, etc. But there's a good part of it of the people here who trusted the government because they were doing largely a very um, commendable job in contact tracing. And the contact tracing graphs were actually published every day, where the people went, at what time, da da da, da da da, et cetera, et cetera. And people who have been to these places within that time, please isolate yourself. So everything was published uh, in the papers, even till uh, now, everything is published. So um, I think people respected that and people trusted the government and um, they know that uh, the situation has to be controlled in that manner. I mean, I don't think um, uh, anybody would have questioned uh, how the Singapore government uh, could not have done a better job. Uh, yes, there are failings. Um, there were a lot of uh, outbreaks in the dormitories um, that was outside the hands of of um, the public because they were living in private dormitories run by private organizations but the government came in took charge of the situation and paid all the workers to isolate themselves for the next couple of months don't leave we're still going to pay your salary and we're going to give you food for free and we're going to give you uh, a free um, phone calls um, to call home to tell your family that you are safe, etc., etc. But there were unfortunate situations whereby um, the stress came in, the mental stress came in when people were locked down for long periods of time. There are there are cases where people jumped down the building, and I have to say that um, these are extreme cases because lockdowns are difficult for certain people. It it may not be from the anxiety of the virus or the news but it just kind of your world just your world just kind of closed in and collapsed so um, I think the mental thing is something that um, the world has to address families and individuals have to address but I think at that time there's a flourish of um, online events that people can actually watch, um, talk to each other, um, workshops, etc. That came up even during that uh, lockdown period and even till now. So a lot of things were in transition online already. Um, it's very active. Um, companies have pivoted themselves to be online. Um, a lot of webinars, uh, Zoom uh, seminars, trainings. A large part of the lives are now um, in the new normal mode. Um, people have safe entry. Uh, there's a new law of safe entry I would like to tell uh, Ben is that whenever you go into um, uh, an enclosed um, area, it could be a restaurant, it could be a school, it could be a shop, okay, or the mall, 
um, you have it is mandated that you must put in this particular app uh, that like tracks where you are going okay you go into the shop and you got to have a temperature taken and of course there are um, certain uh, um, unhappiness about privacy laws right privacy um, that's why the government came up with this uh, new device that we are all going to collect this month um, and this device we're going to put in our pocket and to trace where we are however it will not break into that your data unless there is a positive case um, in that in that gadget that we're gonna we're gonna collect now this gadget uses Bluetooth right if you're within a meet within uh, two meters of someone who's got the case tested positive then it will kind of beep da 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 and then you know you'll be called by um, the Ministry of Health and then you will surrender your beeper and then they will trace where you have been um, for the purpose of um, uh, tracing the other cases so um, this is in place now and this is in place for Singapore to go into phase 3 currently we're still in phase 2 so phase 3 will happen when 70% of the population collects this little device that traces where you are and your data will not be disclosed until um, you are being told that someone um, that you have been with that is within two meters of your vicinity so um, until 70% of the population um, collects that gadget uh, will we go into phase three, which is reopening of the economy? So what's what happens with the economy now? Restaurants are open, right? You can sit into a restaurant, but there are new laws for social distancing in phase two. And the laws are only five people at a table. You can take down your mask, you eat your food, but once you finish your food, you put up you put on yeah, just put on your mask again and then you can leave the restaurant. And um, you can only stay in the restaurant for one and a half hours. All right. And restaurants operate up to 50% capacity. Is that because with the restaurants and people only being able to stay in there one and a half hours, is that because uh, people in Singapore have to eat out a lot? Yes, we do. We eat out a lot. Um, that's a social phenomenon here because this is a fast-paced society. Everybody, everyone is just go bang, you know, bang, bang, bang. Every day, just going fast because this is a this is a commercial, um, financial city hub. Um, people don't really cook at home, and that's why the lockdown was difficult for a lot of um, families um, because. Um, we don't usually cook at home. We just go out to the fast food and either it's McDonald's, Burger King, whatever. We just grab and then we go. You know, we don't sit in a restaurant. Uh, if we do, an hour and we go and, and we're off. Um, but I would like to say that the, the, the mandated social distancing now um, pertaining to restaurant is five people and social gatherings only up to five people. 
not more. Wow. Now, is, that, is that public social gatherings too, or is that public, um, public and family, public and family, wow. private, private is family, private is family, right? And uh, no uh, intermingling of family members. That means if if you got an old folks, right, and then you've got children coming in. Okay, five people in a home, and no third family. So no intermingling of families, and of course, the police will not. You can't enforce that when you're in a house. Okay, so I can't. I can't be for sure how they're going to like track that. So so I don't think. Um, I can't say anything about that. But when you're in a public social gatherings, is up to five people, and what happens is now, Benuel, you may want to. <laughs> Okay, this is something like really, really unique in Singapore. Now, there's Facebook, right? And people post their pictures to their friends in Facebook. Now, if your Facebook shows there are six people or more, you know what your friends are going to do? They're going to report you. And this happens because you have, you have flaunted the um, social distancing law. So there are, there are so many cases like almost not every day, not on a daily basis, but on a constant, consistent basis, like per week, you will see like one group of people being charged in court because there were seven girls in a hotel room, like they were having a party, right? So today the news says there were seven girls, um, you know, they were staying in a hotel, they booked themselves in and they were having wine and, uh, you know, the pictures were posted on Facebook. I think someone just like, reported them. Um, and there were cases also, of course, um, in other cases, uh, you've got young people, like nine or 10 of them, like they booked into a hotel. Um, the hotel can't really like track how many people is in there, right? It's really hard. That's why that's private. But when you start posing it into the social network, when private becomes public, right? The police goes after you. Now, I'm just going to say that by and large, people respect the law here because we want the country to go back to normalcy because people are sick of being in, uh, uh, in pandemic situation. And, and that's why all of us collectively, um, socially, we want each other to keep to the law. Now, now, probably that's really different, different from, from the country that you come from because um, in, I, I would say that in this part of the world, um, there is this concept of uh, society interest is higher than your self-interest. Now, it's hard for you to understand, but this is so much in the, in the culture here that... Um, that the larger good is more important. Okay, the larger good or the social good is more important than individual good. Do you, do you get my point? It's really hard for us. Yeah. I actually do. And I think one of the main differences between one of the things I keep hearing you say, um, like people trust the government, people trust the media, people in this country don't typically trust the government or maybe they do but they they certainly wouldn't trust the government to like would you said you know people like 
I heard a radio story this morning. Um, it's morning here, so I heard a radio story this morning where they they interviewed this, these people in Iowa, which is a state in in my country. And the people in Iowa that they interviewed, they thought it was some kind of plot. Like they thought COVID was actually some sort of plot from the Chinese government, not to have a disease, but to scare people, to scare people to stay home. And it's just, you know, one thing I'm learning in my country is that there's like this divide between, like, you might, some people in this country might think, well, we need to do this for each other and for society. But some people just, and I'm going to say this wrong, but they just don't, I feel like they just don't care. Okay. Yeah, I I would like to address uh I think two issues. One is um is this a hoax by the communist government of China? Uh, not a hoax, but it is something like spread by the by the um communist uh, government of China. And then about people's response, people don't care. Um, now in this country. Some people got a $1,200 check several months ago, mm. which $1,200 in a lot of places in this country, um, that's not a lot of money in a lot of places. But there, there's not really, I guarantee you, if you were to ask the average American on the street, there's no, none of them really think the government is going to step in and, and pay people to sit home or pay people to whatever, you know. Like in this country during the 2008 uh, financial crash, yeah, the government essentially had to to bail out the auto industry. There was a whole lot of people in this country that hated that. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. how individualistic we are. Yeah, yeah, you know. So I yeah, and I and I can address that too. Um, so back to um, the issue of um, uh, is this the Chinese government uh, uh, plan or unintended plan or an accidental plan? Um, I have no idea, but I do know that in January, and I would like your yourself and your listeners to 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 follow this is that. Uh, back in January, I was tracking the news. Um, now, Hong Kong, which is the neighboring country, the autonomous country, um, the University of Hong Kong, um, the professors, the uh, rheologists, uh, ep- epidemiologists, they, and they were the top rheologists of the world, all right? Uh, and you can name them. They, they are the top. Um, they're from Hong Kong. They actually gave a press conference to say, and and the press conference was was um, uh, attended by international uh, news correspondents from Bloomberg, CNN, because they were they were asking questions, and that was already in January. And why do I remember that? Because that was the Chinese New Year, right? It's a big deal in China. So they traced. Right from Hong Kong, they trace that this case in Wuhan happened 
at the end of December and it's going to explode. And they gave the graph because they are the scientists, right? I mean, they exist for a reason. So they gave the whole model and the graphs, but very few people um, uh, in the world um, believed it. And they've got CNN who asked certain questions, they've got Bloomberg and certain local news, etc. But the Hong Kong government came in to step in to immediately shut down, right? A lot of this uh, borders uh, planes and also to start isolating people. So the Hong Kong government came in very quickly. Now, the, at the same time, in December, back in Taiwan, uh, another independent country with relation to China, they found this case, right, in December when it first started to um, spread in Wuhan. And the Taiwanese government, right, um, told uh, essentially it was was out in the news that this case was really strange it's like the SARS and everyone has to be really careful and and the country went into um, the mode preparation mode for this right so these are the countries that reacted very fast when this thing this case in China happened in Wuhan um, at the end of December. So whether it is a case that the Chinese government um, intended it or not intended it, we don't know. I have no idea. But I do know that Hong Kong and Taiwan acted immediately because they've got the best infectious um, scientists there in, in, in the hospitals and they had the case of the SARS virus before. So they have everything, contact tracing, isolation. So in Hong Kong and Taiwan, the cases are still really, really low, right? They're one of the, they are, they, I mean, they are the model for the world, right? However, of course, the World Health Organization politically did not recognize Hong Kong or Taiwan as a country. So their model was not uh, recognized for the rest of the world to replicate, to contain um, the virus. So I can't, I, I wouldn't know. But these are, these are the situation where the government came into to, to take care of the situation. And, and um, of course, there's another um, uh, conspiracy theory, whether this is a bioweapon or not. Um, but I read a lot of science behind it. A lot of European scientists were talking about it in French. Um, and I watched some of them. Um, now, back to um, your country, freedom versus individualism. Um, I, I think a lot of people didn't care because they thought this is a hoax. Um, but I would say that um, in my country, definitely the people who um, passed, died from COVID, um, it's not a hoax to them. Okay, and not a hoax to their family. Um, and Singapore uh, government um, and the consequence of the shutdown of the economy um, has such grave consequences on the jobs and economy here. And I don't think any governments are stupid enough to put their country um, into such a situation. And we do have bailouts like you. Um, we are paid.
um, $600 for a few months during a lockdown. Now we're not paid. But it, it kind of like, it, I mean, the payment is, is really just for you to buy your groceries, etc., etc. We call it the, um, uh, th there was a word for it, you know, um, like strength. I'm sorry. sorry. Tell me. What is the education level in Singapore, would you say? Okay, who is the typical Singaporean? I would say the typical Singaporean woman, they've got a degree or post-degree education. The average Singaporean industry, a man, when you just like say hi to them, usually they've been to the university, they've got a degree. Um, lots, lots of Singaporeans, um, uh, the well-off, and the more intelligent ones, they go to Oxford, they go to the Ivy Leagues in the US, Yale University. My nephew herself, um, she's got a scholarship from the government to study in Oxford, um, and then uh, that's for her degree, and then get her master's that is sponsored by the Singapore government to study in Yale um, for urbanization uh, for Singapore. So um, I would say that a good part of the population are, are really educated. Um, really. Well, the thing, that it, the thing that I keep running into myself is that, um, like I have a master's degree in history. Yeah. And I have a degree in political science. And so that's how I became familiar with graphing and like the curves and stuff, the exponential curve. But a lot of people in this country especially a lot of older people and a lot of older rural people or a lot of rural people in the particular, they don't really have, like, there's not really the, I forget what the percentage is right now of college graduates in this country, but it's not, I don't think it's even half. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that's part of our problem. Like, really. Um, okay, let me just juxtapose your case, like what you just said. Like, let this, let, let's just juxtapose this with Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia. Now, for example, in Thailand, the case is almost zero, but a good population of them, we do not, they do not have a highly educated population, like the mean education, the mean number of years of education, but they've controlled their cases. And uh, when you see the YouTube, even the people in the rurals, the countryside, um, people who are just like living their lives, they're all wearing masks and they're all social distancing. Even today, if you look at the, the, the YouTube that people put up on the internet. So I, I don't really think it's a matter of education or awareness, but I think it's a matter of how I see it, um, how a Singaporean myself see it is um, the concept of individualism versus collectivism um, in Asia versus America. Um, it's the stark difference, how people are being brought up. Um, if you know what I'm trying to refer to, because in a Western country like in the U.S., you emphasize a lot of my right and my freedom. That's why you've got your constitution, right? Um, the right to bear arms. 
um, the right to speak. However, in Singapore and in a large part of Asia, your right depends on how it harms the other people. You see? So, so there is a little bit of difference. But the, different. yes. yeah, but the difference runs through and permeates through the whole society. It must be for the larger good of the people first. And we have been taught that myself, even when I was in school. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, tell me. I, I just have a another question. Does yeah. Singapore have, um, I guess, I don't know what you, what you call it, but in this country, I guess we would call it uh, socialized medicine or, or government... Um, like basically government and healthcare. What, what is the relationship between the government and healthcare in Singapore? Okay. Now, this is a very big question. And I'm happy that you asked. Right? Now, there is a saying here in Singapore. You can die, but you better not get sick. <laughs> it means if you get sick um, and you're diagnosed with a certain terminal disease, all right, or degenerative disease that's going to take you years. Like, um, you may have to sell your house to pay for the medical bill um, because there's very little subsidy from the government. Uh, and your question goes to how much social aid do we get? We are not a so we are not a socialist country. I mean, we have the lowest tax rate in the world. Okay, a lot of us don't pay tax. Uh, we don't need to pay tax because the tax are paid off from the goods and services tax or you call it in America the value added tax. And a lot of companies um, and the tax on companies is really low. Okay, lots of um, uh, uh, methods that is recognized that uh, companies are able to defray their taxes. A lot of companies pay minimal and, it's, and, and people accept that because um, you want the economy to grow and not like have heavy taxes to 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 be burdened by that either as an individual or as a company versus like in France, right? That's where I lived for the last seven years. You don't pay 70% of your tax like in America, I think, um, non-domicile. I think you call it non-domicile, right? Wherever you are located, wherever you work, you still send your money or tax back to the US. But that is not the case in Singapore. The tax rate is really low um, and the tax rate for companies is 20% um, but you can defray it in many many cases and a lot of companies pay minimal taxes um, and we want it that way because the money should go back to um, employee, employees and the marketplace. It should not be passed down to consumers. You know taxes can be passed right in terms of higher prices etc. Um, so healthcare costs, it's really high. Um, and we do have something like the MediSafe that we put aside every month from our paycheck into this account in MediSafe um, that goes to um, differing our, our medical bill. Uh, but this amount that we save up, which is mandatory, um, that you have a deduction from your paycheck every month when you work, um, up to a certain percentage, um, goes into your account and you when you fall sick you pay the bill yourself very little um, subsidy but 
um, there is a mandatory insurance. Your insurance can pay and defray um, your medical bill. Um, and of course, a lot of people believe in insurance in this part of the world. We will buy like multiple insurance like AIA, which is from America, um, etc. Right. So, so your medical bill, it's either being defrayed by insurance companies or if they try to deny that, then you have to pay um, yourself um, a portion of it from your MediSafe account and a large part of it will be from cash. Now, if you don't have the money, I'm sorry, you got to sell your house. Um, I think a lot of people accept that concept uh, of capitalism uh, versus socialist, socialistic uh, uh, kind of um, system versus like... That's got to be interesting because yeah. we, we've talked a lot in this podcast about how uh, the difference between like Singapore and America is individualism versus collectivism. Yeah. You guys are, are very much a capitalist country in a lot of ways. That's that's got to be a fascinating um, yeah. economy. Yeah, socially, um, uh, I would say that, um, and I don't want to use the word like conservatism being conservative or liberal because it has a totally uh, it takes a totally different tone in the US versus in this part of the world because your definition and our definition is slightly different not slightly different but I think it's like what is your definition of conservatism actually I'm um, conservatism versus liberal what is your definition of that um I, I would I would just say being conservative is a thought uh, like a thought um, like it's a very oriental word, a very oriental Eastern word when you say someone is conservative here, socially conservative, but not political. We don't, I'm not putting a political um, color to the word conservative. Here, conservative just means um, like um, sex before marriage is like, um, like a taboo. Right, it's like a no-no. People are conservative. Um, uh, yeah, when you when you go out for dates, you only date one person. You don't date multiple people. You're conservative, and people subscribe or prescribe to such a conservative norm because this is largely a very Oriental Asian uh, uh, society. It's a culture. It's it's the culture here. But yet, uh, economically, we are liberal economically because we are an open country that attracts that want many people to come in here we've got a diversity of faith we've got respect of faith we love each other we've got a hindu i've got hindu friends i've got uh, my f part of my family members are, are buddhist and my 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 best friends are muslims i'm a christian i've got wonderful friends who are catholics um i call that liberal Right, and we respect that, and we love that, and I think that's our that's our trademark in Singapore. We could sit on a table with different faith, and we can talk, and we can eat, and we can respect, and and be good friends, and like pat each other on the back, and give each other hugs, and we can celebrate each other's um festive, like like to, like two days ago, I think today is the Deepavali, that is the Indian um holy day, the Hindu holy day. 
people do respect that, even though I'm a Christian, I respect that, and I will greet each other like happy uh, Diwali, etc. Uh, it's the festival of lights for the Hindus. I mean, there's a lot of respect um, in that sense, and and we welcome foreigners. We, I mean, I really do. I mean, of course, there's a subset, a small percentage of the people they're disgruntled because like foreigners are coming, coming here, they're taking on the jobs, da 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 da. da I mean, etc. Um, you will not have perfection except in heaven, right? But largely it's liberal, um, there's respect, there's harmony, um, uh, there's, there is concern for each other in the neighborhood. Like I give out masks um, and I print out, I created like newsletters, like I'm going to paste it on the wall and I distribute it to my neighbor's stores. I say that, hey, this is the latest news, this is the latest numbers. Um, etc right that's respect um yeah so that i call it liberal right um and economically liberal because we want um people to come in here we want the best people to be in the country we want all the companies to be here for jobs um for um yeah for jobs um for for economic growth we need that i mean this is a really small island so I call it liberal, uh, economically liberal. Um, politically, I think a little bit conservative, as in right. politically conservative, but you have to, you and, and your listeners have to understand that um, we, we, we separate um, faith with um, government. All right? Um, yeah, this is a country that respects all kinds of faith. It's a country, um, our president, she's a Muslim lady, and we respect that and we love her. I'm a, I'm a Christian, I love her, okay? She's Muslim, okay? And she's the first woman, Muslim woman, who's a president in the world. But, but we don't talk about it a lot because we are, we are already accepted it. That's part of our nation building. It's nothing to be like telling the world about because that's part of our, that's part of our, our, our culture. And, and we have, um, uh, uh, we have our presidents who are Chinese, uh, Indians, uh, and now we have a Muslim. Um, and, and our political makeup is from various parts, all walks of life, all faith, all colors. Um, and we use in, an English language as our official language. That kind of ties in. Okay. Yeah. Tell me. I talk to you yeah. over the time. This is the f second time you and I have talked. We talked yeah. on your podcast. And yeah. Now you're talking on my podcast. And, and we've talked a lot on uh, Facebook. Yeah. But the more I talk to you, the more I'm fascinated by Singapore itself. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So you're a city state that has English as your primary language, your official language. Yeah. Um, is that because you were an English colony? How, how did? Yeah, we were. We were. We were. We were. Okay. Um, we were ruled by the British, and we have a parliamentary system, um, a modified, simplified one. Doesn't really follow the the one in the UK, um, and of course, um, the prime minister. Is the one that is the uh, the one that uh, controls the whole parliament, but the head of state is still um, uh, the president, um, who is a, a Muslim woman, um, and 
um, yeah, we have the parliamentary uh, uh, sessions uh, and we vote in our member of um, uh, parliament uh, representative uh, of the constituency, we call it here. So, so it's like a simplified version of the UK version. And uh, like when I was in college, I still study the Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I don't and know, me, yeah. City states has always fascinated me, yeah. um, even as a kid. Yeah. But, um, uh, um, Hmm. It's, yeah, it's something for you as a historian to study. You know, it is it is a very fascinating thing myself as I moved to, to France because when I was there studying in the university, I studied one year French in the University uh, Michel de Montaigne. Um, you know, I, I was in this French class um, just to show you the phenomenon uh, because I, I come from Singapore, right? I told you we sit um, together no matter what faith you are. I mean, I don't care. It doesn't matter, right? Um, so so when I was in class in France, and everybody was trying to learn French, and they come from all over the world, and you've got, of course, the asylum seekers, right? The Africans, the people from Middle East, you've got Asians, etc., and you've got the... Hello? Yep, you're here? Okay. Um, and what I found is that uh, they didn't want to sit with each other when the faith was different. And I was shocked. So I come from a country whereby we accepted differences. And I was really shocked. And I, then I really noticed that in a lot of countries, it was such huge, huge divides. Um, in many countries, even within the class, when we're trying to like learn something, like this person didn't want to talk to that person. And they're, okay, and these people are of different age groups, right? You've got, they are mature adults. We're not talking about children. We're not talking about people like in, in their teens. We're talking about people in their um, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, because some of them are asylum seekers in France. So, so you know, yeah, you're right. And I hope that you would like to excavate uh, the uniqueness of Singapore is that we accept each other, and I think I love my friends who are different. And we, yeah, we're we're still talking. I'm still talking to my to my girlfriends who are, who are non Christians, and I would advise her about certain things about faith, and she would tell me about things you know about her faith, and we could share. Um, I mean, we grew up like this. I, I don't think I can I can or a Singaporean can live in a different way because we grew up this way. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's it's interesting to me. Like, you know, in America, there's a, especially uh, apparently now, there's a, a distinct urban that I think is frightening. But it's just interesting to me that um, the differences between even the Europeans that I've met. And even some of the Americans I've met, that that's totally in my estimation, you're you're right. Like the Europeans I've met are just very much um I don't know, like they're much more uh conservative in certain ways in how they uh who they choose to interact with. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yes, yes. 
um, I believe there is a big portion of that. I can't put the number. Um, that's for history to, to study. Um, and, uh, and with regards to the pandemic, I think it kind of manifests itself. What kind of uh, community um, are you, um, or what, yeah, what kind of community uh, is, are you in? Or what kind of metal are you made of, so to speak? Um, what kind of society will break down in a pandemic, in a situation whereby there's crisis, um, crisis management, you call it? Or what kind of society will come together and emerge from it? I think this will be that litmus test for humanity. Um, people who recognize that we as humans should collectively come together regardless who you are to fight um, the pandemic or you say that no, um, you are you, I am I. It's like this huge divide. Um, I think that kind of community, I'm not sure how it's going to survive. So we will see and history will show what kind of uh, ideology will survive in a crisis. Am I right to say that? Yeah, you can totally say that because you can't see me nodding along with you, but I'm totally nodding along with you. I, I, I really do think that one of the things I'm noticing is that the world is going to change after this. I don't know man, what it's going to look like. I absolutely don't. Yeah. One of the things I think about a lot with this disease is how new it is. And, like, we don't know what's going to happen to these people years down the road. Yep. Yeah. You know, we just don't know. We don't, yeah, it's too new to, that's why it's a novel coronavirus is novel. So you don't have the data to study what's going to happen down the road. Exactly. Like, when I did my podcast on the Spanish flu, yep. um, one of the things I learned was that even the people that got better from it, uh, years later, they would still have heart issues and, and nervous issues and things like that. Hmm. I mean, you know. Okay. Yeah. A little bit of studies have come out now um, from, I think it's from India that I, that I read, is that um, the virus does attack the heart, the brain, the lungs, of course and damage the rest of your organs, whichever succumbs to it, right? Um, it, it really depends on your immunity, how your body responds, etc. So um, that's, and, and that's for people who are, even for us, us asymptomatic people, but we're not talking about symptomatic. Symptomatic means you're already succumbing to it. You're already going through the grind. Your, your organs are being stressed out. But even for asymptomatic people, the damage is being done already. And also people who recovered from that, okay, it's already damaged. Um, it, it really depends on what happens in your system. Um, so, um, well, you're right to say, but we still don't have concrete numbers about the statistics about how and why certain people react this way um, their body reacts this way or that that body reacts another way. So that's not enough of um, uh, significant empirical studies 
at this point yet. I think it's not enough to collectively uh, do the data crunching yet. But, you know, reports are coming out already in like in, in, in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, um, South Korea, on people, countries that are leading in the fight. Um, they're already studying it and they're already releasing the results and also in India. Um, yeah. Right. Um, it's, just, it's just so like, I don't know, like, interesting how, I don't want to use the word interesting, but I guess how like, um, we've had to rise to this challenge and yeah. basically like our society, we yeah, you just noticed the stress in Yeah, let me ask you this um, before you go. In Singapore, um, first of all, before the pandemic, yeah, um, before the pandemic, did you have a lot of multi generational households before the pandemic? Yes, we do. It's it's really part of the family structure in this part of the world. Um, like um, you are expected. Okay, to take care of your parent, you are expected um, to care for them when they're old. You don't put them in um, a nursing home. Um, it is not uh, socially acceptable. Um, you're seen as like the bad person, right? Um, so yeah, if that answers your question, and that's a huge reflection of how we take care of each other due to that oriental philosophy. Um, even though we are very liberal in terms of um, economically, but you know, in certain parts of us, we are really conservative in terms of our values, if that's what you're trying to say. Well, the reason I was asking is because one of the changes that everybody notices, uh, when you take like the last economic recession that was 2008 going forward to to now which is another in this country another horrible economic recession um one thing that social observers notice is that more and more people are, there's more and more multi-generational and even uh, family households and um so i was wondering how the, the virus affects that in Singapore, but I don't know that you'd be able to tell. Um, well, uh, in the first place, people were living with the, with, the, with their parents um, or their grandparents, um, which is quite common here. Um, uh, it, it is quite rare that you've got, you do have uh, little pockets of, of people whereby, you know, um, they live alone. The, the folks, the old folks live alone, right? Um, because the children, they, you know, they're moving out, etc. Um, or they buy bigger houses, they move out. Um, there are cases like that. Um, but largely, um, people take care of each other. So okay, my mom has passed on um, five years ago. She's gone home to the Lord. Um, but I love her to stay with me. And I'm always like fighting with my siblings, like, please have her stay with me. And my brother wants her to stay with them. You know, this is the amount of, of connection we have with each other, um, uh, with, with our families. Um, 
uh, yeah so probably that is a reflection yeah probably that's a, like a reflection of of how each other is taking care of each other yeah yeah, well, until recently, we didn't really, I'm sorry. Until recently, we didn't really do that in this country. Yeah, it, it, it may be a good thing, you know, um, people realigning their priorities. Um, when when the world is shut down, you've got time uh, to think about it. Um, I have a, a podcast uh, episode where whereby I talk about um, rediscovering my faith um, during the lockdown, etc., um, that you know, I'll share with you another day. So, thank you so much, Ben. Um, so, that is that the final question? Yeah, that was the final question. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Ben, for having me. Um, and I would like to tell everyone before you close um, for the episode is that today, seventeenth November right 2020 uh the world case is 55 million five hundred and twenty-seven thousand one hundred and fifteen coronavirus cases reported okay we're not talking about unreported cases reported and recorded and death one million three hundred thirty-five thousand four hundred and nine death recorded and reported okay i'm really careful about what i'm saying all right because we don't know the cases that goes unreported and undetected and undeclared so with that um, i i just want to uh thank you once again for having me and i want to wish you and your uh listeners um wherever they are whomever they are um please uh take care of yourselves and for me, I stay home most of the time because I respect um, the medical uh, persons who are fighting this war in the front line in the hospitals. Um, I've got too much respect for them to be out in public and to be out there without a mask. All right. Because they say stay home and I stay home. So I think if we have respect for um, the medical staff who's fighting this and lots of um, doctors and nurses who have killed themselves and who were killed by the virus, um, I think, uh, you know, whatever we've been asked, either we are, we are asked to stay home, social distance or wear a mask, that's nothing compared to what they are doing. So um, that's my final, um, yeah, my final word for you today. Okay. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, just hold on the line with me for just a second, please.